Welcome to Inclusion at Work, where we show the value and abilities of people with disabilities. I'm Larry Rothstein. Today's guest is David McCauley, artist, nonprofit director, and community activist. Welcome, David. Thanks for having me, Larry. Much appreciated. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about how you acquired your disability? And then we'll talk about some of the great things you're doing right now. Sure thing. In 2008, I was on a weekend trip from New York City out to my friend's house in East Hampton to celebrate his birthday. And we were young and fun people. As the night progressed on, we ended up jumping into a pool late at night. I dove into the shallow end, hit the bottom, had a compression injury that actually shattered my C6 vertebrae and damaged my spinal cord. So, you know, fast forward, you know, two or three weeks in the ICU and then four months of a grueling amount of rehabilitation, uh, I started to emerge back into the real world from that. And I went back to work. I was working for a financial exchange on Wall Street at the time. I went back to there to, to that job for about uh, a year. And I just realized that a, I was unable to do do what I'm supposed to be doing to the best of my ability. Um, and then I also had a, a re-evaluation of priorities in life. So when I was in the uh, hospital doing my rehabilitation, I was introduced to art therapy. And it had such a profound impact on me that I launched a 501c3 nonprofit to uh, provide those types of workshops for an array of hospitals and rehabilitation centers. That's what I've been doing the past 10 plus years and COVID and the pandemic kind of put a hampering on people being in hospital settings that weren't strictly required to be there. So that's kind of been put on pause for the past year, year and a half, which is okay. Cause I feel like personally, I go through cycles in terms of cities I've lived in and careers that I've chosen to pursue. And I just feel like this is me evolving into whatever that next stage in life is. And here we are. What did you gain from working in art? How did it shift you from wherever you were emotionally uh, during the rehab to where you were after you began, you know, doing artwork? You know what? A peace of mind. When I was introduced to art therapy, it wasn't about, hey, we're going to paint this painting to make it look like Picasso or another realist painter. It was here's a white canvas. Let's kill the white on it and see how you feel. It doesn't matter if you paint it all blue, all green, all red, whatever. It's the erasing that white on the canvas, which was incredibly therapeutic. And then sometimes it doesn't even matter what color you're painting. It's the brush strokes and the rhythm to it. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, seeing what the brush does uh, with different like loads of paint, um, figuring out different ways uh, to create art with paint without a brush. A lot of times people with, um, you know, physical limitations or issues with their uh, hand dexterity, they look for alternative forms of art. And, you know, I've, I've done these like pump sprayers, almost like fire extinguishers that would blow art up, you know, 12, 15 feet onto a wall. Oh, so wow. that, yeah, it's not, it's, it's a really um, invigorating feeling to feel like, oh, I'm limited. I can't hold a brush. I can't do this. I can't do that. And then be introduced an adaptive art making technique that's just like 
boom, eyes wide open. Oh my God, I'm capable of doing this. Even if it's throwing paint out of a, you know, out of a can onto a wall and seeing how gravity helps you create that artwork. Like there's so many different forms of, of art making um, that are non-traditional. And uh, I was Pollock, like, you know, I mean, he yeah. just paint on the canvas on the floor. So you're just throwing it on the wall. Exactly. And he was, and, and that was, it wasn't about him recreating uh, a photograph with these fine brushstrokes. It was all about emotion. And I think people that are going through this traumatic injury have a lot of emotion, trauma, feelings to deal with. So it's a, it's really a beautiful outlet. It's a release. You know, that's the best way I can describe it is this uh, through that painting process. It's like, you know, letting the gas out of a canister. Um, well, one of the things that No Limits proposes about people with disabilities is there are different abilities and the creativity that comes about as they try to figure out how to be some ways, you know, just being able to create a painting and find out a technique that will work for you to uh, release emotions is part of what people with disabilities actually bring to the workforce. They have to do things differently. And sort of intuitively, they're creating diverse ways to approach things. I think you hit it on the head there because living with a disability, it's all about problem solving, right? Oh, I can't do yeah. it in the traditional way. How can I adapt or make it work for me? And, um, you know, you do that with art all the time, but that translates into everyday life like how is how is holding a toothbrush much different than holding a paintbrush right um it it really does lend itself into everyday activities other than creative activities so from your personal experience you created a nonprofit to try to spread art therapy to, in other communities and hospital settings is, is that how that nonprofit began Exactly. And, and we launched it um, in, in New York and New Jersey. And then uh, about a year after we launched it, I moved down to Miami and partnered with Jackson Memorial Hospital, which is the main spinal cord injury rehabilitation facility in greater Miami-Dade. And we ran our, our, our workshops there for 10 years, a little over 10 years. And how many people were involved in the, the workshops at any particular time? And well, we, we've had a rotating cast of uh, amazing volunteers as well as art therapists participate. But our, our workshops would be anywhere from six to 20 people, depending on um, the time of the year and how many people were available to, to participate. And how did different people react to the opportunity to do artwork? were some taken with it, others reluctant, but then gradually found that it was fairly helpful? You know, if, if you've ever seen people in a, ther in a therapeutic setting, uh, some people will latch on to stuff and be like, I love this. And then, you know, some people are, it's, it's serious trauma that people are slowly emerging from. You know, if you just were in a, a car accident or you're a, a victim of gun violence two weeks prior, and then all of a sudden, you know, this guy's pushing paintbrushes and canvases in front of you while you're in the hospital and your whole life is turned upside down. You might not instantly want to like warm up to the idea. 
But I also think that's the magic potion of where the beauty of the therapy would work because people would get around these relatively large tables and they're in square shapes, maybe like five feet by five feet. So you could put four people with four separate canvases at each of these tables, or you could put one large canvas and have, you know, three or four people collaborate on a, on a larger piece. And the conversation that happens at that point, it's not about the artwork. The art is kind of like the conduit um, that opens up these conversations between these various patients, inpatients, outpatients, people from different socioeconomic, cultural backgrounds. And, and the conversation shifts pretty quickly from, hey, what do you guys want to paint to check this out? Let me encourage you. You can definitely go back and finish that college degree or you know what I learned a trick the other day to put on my shoes maybe it'll work for you know your hands with your dexterity and ability and and this is these are things that I never thought of when I launched the organization but I saw grow over time and and really that was like the most beautiful aspect of it is having these people from various walks of life um you know, dealing with this same traumatic injury and, and the recovery process, the injury doesn't discriminate, you know, so you have folks from all different types of locations and walks of life collaborating on these projects. And like I said earlier, the project just becomes a conduit for conversation flow. And it's a pretty unique thing to create and, and witness and, you know, obviously encourage because I see the benefits of it all. These people that got thrown together in a recreational art therapy workshop 10 years ago are lifelong friends to this day, even if they're on opposite sides of the United States or the world, and they still, you know, communicate, talk about this, talk about life. And um, whenever you can be that bridge that builds that connection between two or more people, then, you know, that's super gratifying for me. Are you still doing artwork because of the pandemic? Some of these activities, uh, as you said, were curtailed. I am on a personal level and I still work with art lifting. And, uh, you know, we've pushed that realm of art lifting with my projects into like the public art realm, which I'm super, super, super proud of. And art lifting continues to grow and do amazing things. And it's just amazing to be a part of that organization. I love working with them. It's the best group of people that are that are doing it for all the right reasons. But me personally, in terms of running workshops in a hospital setting, that's that's been on pause since April 2020, which, you know, in my mind, I think, oh, we haven't been doing it for a year, year and a half. But as soon as I just said that April 2020, I'm, I'm realizing that it's coming up on two years that we're yeah. we're not doing it. Yeah. So, and, and it's probably pushed on pause in terms of the Miami project uh, indefinitely because I, I also relocated during the pandemic over to St. Petersburg, Florida, which is on the Gulf Coast. So things, um, you know, things have, things have changed and evolved and that whole ebb and flow of life is, is happening. Uh, but, you know, I'm always welcoming to that. I've, I feel like I, I accept what, life brings and I'm and also like have the forward vision to see what's what's coming for me and to kind of get out ahead of it to be able to you know create and pursue the projects that I want to. As you know I I actually know Liz Powers who was started art lifting she was at the booth next to the No Limits booth at this Harvard Club uh, 
function for nonprofits. And she had just started it with her brother. They had, I think, put in $2,000 a piece. That's all the money they had to start the nonprofit. And she had been working at a homeless shelter, I think, while she yeah. was at Harvard. And she noticed that some of the people at the shelter were very good artists. In fact, some of them had actually gone to very distinguished art schools like uh, RISD or the University of Chicago. And they were dealing with depression, being homeless. And the idea was to see if she could sell those works of art. And art lifting has become this sort of fantastic organization that I think the last I know, there was more than 100 people who were self-sustaining as artists and their works were being sold to Staples and Google and other major corporations. And uh, they had incorporated the art to help them deal with their emotional disabilities as you were exactly. using it to do the physical and emotional uh, trauma that you had experienced. So it's just a great program. And uh, hopefully we'll have Liz on to, on another podcast to talk more about art lifting. Are you, you're on the board? Is that right? No, no, I'm just one of the, I'm just one of the, the artists at art lifting. Oh, okay. Um, I, I feel like I've been around from day one, maybe maybe like day six or seven, <laughs> but yeah. uh, it was definitely early. I think it was in 2012 or 2013, and Spencer actually found me via a uh, hashtag, art therapy hashtag on Instagram, and he saw what I was doing down in Wynwood in Miami, and he came down and saw my gallery there, and I was doing a, a similar thing to art lifting, but I was providing the art workshops at Jackson, but then exhibiting the work at a very small uh, gallery in Wynwood. And when they were like, oh, we just want to focus on, you know, marketing and selling the artwork. And I was like, oh my God, that's the piece I don't want to do. Let's figure out some sort of partnership so I can just, you know, create my own stuff as, as well as lead these workshops. And uh, yeah, I think I might've been like the fifth or sixth artist that they brought on and um, they've grown to be like 140 plus and of which I've probably, you know, introduced them to a large number of those as well. So it's always great. And the fact that they're based in Boston, which ties into another one of the organizations, I'm on the board of the Impossible Dream. I think that's what you're thinking. Right. Um, yeah. I wanted to get to that next. Which is yeah. Also, so yeah. we're, we're always up in New England in, during the summertime and uh, you know, I love taking the folks popping into the office for art lifting and taking some of their folks out over the years on the boat and the gallery that represents me in Boston is there. So it's like, it's a nice hub that I get to every summer for a month or so, at least in New England, not necessarily Boston, but any, you know, anywhere from Boston up to Portland, Maine, I'm typically there for four to six weeks in the summertime. And uh, it's, it's really great just to see the, the folks there and, I've seen art lifting grow exactly from what you said, Spencer and Liz in the very beginning to this organization full of wonderful, incredibly smart, conscious, young individuals building something really beautiful. And it's just like, you know, I'm in awe and, and again, super humbled and, and grateful to, to be affiliated with it. So tell our listeners about the impossible dream, which from what I've read, it's just incredible. <laughs> I think it's an amazing thing you've created. So just fill in the details of how you started it and what you do. And 
Sure. So my friend Deborah Mellon went on a friend of hers, Andreas, wheelchair accessible catamaran. I believe it was, I don't know if it was stateside or if it was in the Mediterranean, but she had an experience on Andreas's um, wheelchair accessible catamaran. And she thought, this is amazing. I, you know, I would like to pursue something like this. Fast forward, uh, you know, 12 or 18 months, she found the only design from, you know, the keel up wheelchair accessible sailing catamaran and it was for sale and it was in England. So she ended up purchasing it, launching a 501c3 here in the States called Impossible Dream, brought it down to Miami, Florida and uh, said, hey, it's here. Let's uh, let's build something with it. And the programming started in Miami. Uh, We're doing programming strictly there for probably the first two or three years. And then we had the idea to a get out of town during hurricane season, but also bring this gift of being out on the water as a wheelchair user to a greater population. So we contacted hospitals and rehabilitation centers up and down the East Coast uh, to see if they would partner with us. And now we have 20 plus ports uh, anywhere between Miami and Maine that we uh, sail into during four and a half, five months in the summertime. And we partner with the hospitals and the rehabilitation centers. We take their inpatients, their outpatient sailing, um, wounded warrior programs, any, any organization that has, that works with the population of people with disabilities we're willing to, to partner with. We, we also partner with uh, drug and alcohol rehabilitation centers. So it's because we believe that healing aspect of the water can be shared amongst all of us, you know, and um, it's such a unique vessel. It's such a, a beautiful team that I get to work with. Um, it's, it's a super special project and obviously something I look forward to every year. Leaving Miami and coming over to St. Pete is, you know, everybody goes through these life transitions, but the things that I really miss about Miami was certainly my, my art crew, but also all the programming that we did there with Impossible Dream and the folks at Shake a Leg, which is a huge program that's been around for 30 years between Newport, Rhode Island and, and Miami that has a whole fleet of sailboats that are all adapted for people with disabilities and run summer camps and all these beautiful things down in Coconut Grove. So I've noticed myself really missing that. Part of it was pandemic because I know everybody else's programming got scaled back a little bit, but you know, also the distance. It's nice to just jump on a train or a bus and be down in the Grove and you know, figure out if somebody's going sailing or stuff like that. It's that's at a at an arm's length right now. So you know, I feel myself missing it. But who knows? Maybe uh, maybe we can get something like that popping over here in St. Pete in the years to come. Can you explain how the the catamaran has adapted? So when people think of wheelchair accessibility, they are typically thinking either ramps or width of doorways, uh, walkways. Um, turning radius inside of rooms, things like that. So the Impossible Dream actually has lifts on the exterior part of the vessel. So if you pull up on on the port or starboard side, there is probably a 42 by 42 inch platform that'll raise and lower to the height of the floating dock. So if you're only going to board one or two wheelchairs, it's easy to use that lift. Come down to the the height of the floating dock, there's a little uh, ramp that like folds out. So if you need 
help bumping up that or crossing a, a gap, it's there. Now, a lot of times what we'll do when we're doing programming, heavy programming in the summertime, we'll have 10 plus wheelchairs, including power chairs, which are a little bit larger, wider, more girthy than some of the manual chairs. So we'll deploy a, a ramp onto the dock. That way we don't like tax the up and down, up and down, up and down motion because those are, you know, all gears and things that have a shelf life on them. You overuse them and they'll have a tendency to break down. Um, so we'll use a ramp if we're boarding, you know, 10 plus wheelchairs. And then, but when we build the, or board those 10 plus wheelchairs, we're also boarding the plus ones, family member, caretaker, nurse, physical therapist, whoever it may be. And, um, so, you know, for that type of foot traffic, we'll usually deploy a ramp. Now, when you come to the interior of the vessel, there's a, the helm is in the front of the boat. Uh, it's a steering wheel with a lot of, uh, it looks like the Millennium Falcon. There's a lot of GPS and, and um, winches and things that are push button controlled through hydraulics. So you can raise and lower sails trim the sails, all types of things happen there in, in the cockpit and, and where the helm is. And then on the interior, there's two more lifts. They go down to the quarters below, one on the port side, one on the starboard side. So you take this interior lift, which is set up very similar to the exterior lift. It's a platform, probably smaller than 40 by 40, maybe something like 36 by 36. And you get on this platform and it brings you down into the lower compartments of which there is sleeping quarters in the bow of the boat and a sleeping quarters in the stern of the boat on each side of the catamaran and then a, uh, a head or bathroom in between. So, and then it's mirrored on the opposite side. So you have, if you double up and double beds, you have the capacity to sleep eight with two, um, with two heads, two bathrooms on board. Um, so when we're doing long traverses, uh, you know, offshore stints for seven plus days, it's a, it's a rotation of people that are participating because, you know, people have to drive the boat. There's usually a navigator, usually two at least uh, on watch. And we rotate through that um, throughout those journeys. And then, um, yeah, sleeping quarters are below. Sometimes you have to sleep during the daytime. Sometimes you got to sleep during the nighttime. Sometimes you got to get up and do watch at 3 a.m. It all just depends on where you're traveling to and, uh, you know, what the destination is. So <clears throat> the people with disabilities actually participate in, in sailing the catamaran, though, right? Oh, yeah. So it's, it's typically a mixed ability crew. Captain has been on board since uh, day one, and we've gone through uh, a couple different first mates over the years, of which all of them have been super spectacular, at, but they've both been able-bodied, Captain and the first mates. And then a mixed ability crew has jumped on throughout the summer voyage. So uh, the first leg is typically um, Miami to Annapolis or Chesapeake Bay area. So to, to do that, we're, we're literally going way offshore, coming around Cape Hatteras, and then coming back in towards the Chesapeake Bay to, to dock and do programming at Annapolis. Um, and then from that point, this, the, the legs become much shorter because we're doing programming 
Annapolis, um, Baltimore, you know, scoot up to New York City and then do programming in um, Long Island Sound, oftentimes, uh, maybe out on Long Island, coming up into like Newport, Rhode Island, uh, Cape Cod, we'll come cut through Cape Cod Canal, come into Boston, and then continue north into Newburyport, as well as Portland, Maine. This is quite a trip there. <laughs> That's a, yeah, the entire coast of America. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We go over 4,000 miles and it usually takes somewhere between four and five months. Usually leave around June 1st and arrive a week or so before Halloween. And when you say do programming, what does that mean? I think the best example is probably Spalding Hospital in Boston, where their new location is literally down on the waterfront in Charlestown. So, right. and where we dock, we have a partnership with the Charlestown Marina. So they provide dockage for our boat. You can see the boat from the hospital windows. So when you're encouraging even inpatients, we've had inpatients come down in hospital beds wow. just to the dock and, and be super timid to get on the boat because we have to get them out of the bed to actually get on the boat. It could be scary for somebody that, you know, just had a recent injury two, three, four weeks ago and more saying, hey, come sailing with us. But I think once they get on the boat and they see the accessibility of it, they understand like, oh, this is, first of all, it's safe. Um, second of all, it's really, really, really fun. And it's interesting to acknowledge all the adaptive things that have been created on the boat to make it accommodating for, for those with mobility issues. So, you know, we'll pull up to Boston and dock there for seven to 10 days and do two or three sales a day with Spalding patients and patients and outpatients. You know, so we're doing, let's say, 12 to 20 people per sale three times a day, two or three times a day for a week, week and a half. Like that's it's heavy programming. We take I don't know what the most recent statistics from this past year are, but I mean, well over a thousand patients we take sailing every summer. The idea of universal design, whether it's for a building or catamaran slash boat, is that when people are trying to create they think of it in terms of universal access, and that opens up all sorts of creative possibilities and inclusion, as opposed to you know multiple stairs <laughs> that people unconsciously are unaware of as an enormous barrier. Uh, you know, we interviewed Senator Tammy Duckworth in uh, Inclusion at Work television series, and she said at the Capitol building there still is only one way in and out for a person in a wheelchair, which of course was extremely risky during the insurrection because all the exits and entrances were being blocked. And I was uh, watching it and was saying, oh my God, how would she even get out if her life was threatened? So, you know, so many possibilities exist in terms of designing new things, your voyage of discovery opens up so many things for people. And I think it's sort of a metaphor similar to the artwork. I mean, it's where creativity meets the disability. Uh, I totally agree. And I, and, I, and I love that you mentioned that in terms of the design, because Deborah is a huge proponent of the thoughtful and the conscious design of the boat. And she always says, it's not just the most accessible, it's the most beautiful. And when you look yeah. at it, it's the lines are, are so sleek. The, the catwalk that goes literally on the outside of the boat, all the way to the bow, all the way, it's, it's a complete oval. 
around the entire boat is accessible by a wheelchair. And if you look at it from the side, it, it, you know, at head height, you don't even see it. Like it's, it's concealed and it's hidden until you're actually like going up the ramp and the catwalk. So it's, you know, that things can be done in a very thoughtful way and it can also be beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, sort of the message for people thinking about hiring people with disabilities is to get out of the mindset of, oh, we have to put a ramp up or we have to do this into, whoa, what an opportunity for us to get creative about our building or our, you know, our business. Because when we bring them in, it'll force us to be more creative and more innovative and more imaginative than we are because we don't even think about those things. You know? And as with a painting, you can do it multiple ways. You can design a building in multiple ways. You can design fashion in multiple ways. And yes. suddenly it, those barriers that existed disappear. And in the effort to work together, you find new inspiration and collaboration and opportunities that didn't exist before. And I think that's a huge factor of sailing the vessel up and down the East Coast. It's made um, two uh, Atlantic crossings. We have raced in multiple regattas, Fort Lauderdale to the Keys. We've done Key West to Cuba. We've done St. Petersburg to Mexico. And everywhere we go, we get to educate and raise awareness about accessibility. You get to places that don't have floating docks, that don't have any type of Moby Bats to go over sandy parts of shore. And we arrive and, and you know, we literally sailed there, a group of wheelchair sailors. So it's like, if we can get here, we can figure out how to get on land, you know? I don't care if it's Mexico or Cuba or, or, or somewhere in the Mediterranean. Like this is, it's, it's such a great eye-opener for others in terms of to rethink of the design of marinas. And uh, I think the folks that we partner with at Charlestown Marina, A, they're just wonderful people and have always been super accommodating to us since day one, but they get it. You know, they get it like, hey, we're going to have wheelchairs down the dock. We're going to do, be doing programming with Spalding for the next, you know, 10, 14 days. And we need it to, to have it as comfortable and make it work as much. And it's like from from the first year to the second year to the third year, they've always made improvements on account of us. And it's not like we're these angry wheelchair people coming in and be like, oh, it doesn't work for us. They just, they see what we're working with and they're like, how can, you know, people want feedback. How can we improve it? Oh, well, this would be cool. Oh, we saw this at a different marina and it worked really great. Da, 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 da. And, you know, it's just sparking that light bulb for others. And, and people are more than willing to do it because they want to be inclusive. Right. I think you, you create the opportunity and you fire their imaginations and they, you know, the, then they want to do it. And of course they should be doing it, but in many cases they haven't been doing it because they don't see the possibilities. Let me ask you, what does the future hold for you? I'm glad you asked that because uh, I've been doing some, I think we all have some soul searching over the past year, year and a half with this pandemic. And even, you know, forget about the pandemic. I always tend to shuffle the deck and not reinvent myself every seven or eight years, but I, I tend to, you know, relocate, maybe, you know, take my career in a different trajectory, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I feel that part of it was forced because of the pandemic, but part of it was like, I enjoy discovering new things. So the way that I discovered art therapy 
12, 13 years ago and then pursued it for a decade plus. I'm feeling that way with music and music therapy. I grew up playing the trumpet, guitar, keyboards, making beats with MPCs, all this stuff, turntables, DJing prior to my injury. And, and I really tried to play guitar after I got hurt. And my hands are just like trying to play guitar with wearing oven mitts or like winter mittens. Just doesn't work. I don't have that, the dexterity with my fingers or any of it. Um, and I, I tried these adapted devices. I've probably bought three or four things and they just didn't work for me. And then maybe two months ago in November, three months ago, I went into um, a music shop here called Seven Seas Music in St. Pete. And I started talking to a gentleman in there and happened to be the owner. And he put a, a lap steel guitar, which is a slide guitar on my lap. He was like, well, have you ever tried playing one of these? You know, he looked at my hands. He's not a physical therapist or occupational therapist, but he's been building guitars for 40 plus years. So he, you know, he saw what I was dealing with and tried to, you know, give me ideas and solutions. So he put the lap steel in my lap and I thought, okay, this feels good. It looks good. I think I could probably strum it effectively. But then he gave me the, uh, the slide, which is a heavy piece of polished steel. Looks like a tube. And, um, you know, that thing's like butter in my hands. I couldn't, you know, just, I can't even grab that thing. It's ridiculous how, how inaccessible it was to me. But I left that day thinking there's got to be a way that, you know, that I attach that thing. So um, I went through a couple different thought processes. I ended up getting um, a glass and a metal slide with a hollowed tube. And I used one of like my thick mural brushes, which is like way thicker in diameter than your thumb and it's wood. And I shoved the brush handle through it to the point where it like stuck. And then I put the other part of the brush in my wheelchair glove and I was able to use that slide. It wasn't perfect, but it allowed me to use it. So I started sliding up and down the neck of the guitar. I tuned it to open G. So instead of having these um, complex uh, fingerings and finger positions, I was able to uh, just go essentially do bar chords up and down the neck in steps and half steps to hit a whole scale of notes. And I thought, okay, I think I can do this. And then as I Googled and researched and, and taught myself more, I found uh, a guy named Eric Abernathy in North Carolina, and he's a quad and he plays lap steel guitar. So I just I reached out to him. I was like, hey, man, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at what you're doing. And I see that you have this device that is it looks like you have some sort of a mold onto the onto the slide. Like, what did you do? How did you make it? What is it? And he was like, measure your thumb, send it to me. So I sent him the measurements of my thumb, like, uh, you know, a woman to go get fitted for a wedding dress. And he built me this. Uh, and I'll have to send you guys um images of what he sent me it's this thing where my middle finger goes into this piece of wood that's been uh fixed glued screwed all this stuff onto the the slide for the guitar and uh and it just makes it so much easier it's not going to slip out of my hand it's essentially attached to my palm with with the reinforcement of my middle finger going through the middle of it and i was like oh wow it's one of those breakthrough moments when like as a somebody with disability i'm a quad when you figure out how to put your socks on or how to brush your teeth or how to feed yourself or how to bathe yourself. It's one of those things like, oh my God, I just got infinitely more independent by figuring out this little trick, right? 
Um, so that happened like two months ago and I've been playing and playing and playing and I found a guitar teacher and she's great and helps me, you know, adapt things to, to, to make it work for me. So that's kind of where my mind is, Larry. It's like, I have that same passion that I did 12 years ago about art therapy right now with music therapy. And I don't necessarily want to teach it. I'd rather fund it buy a lap steel guitar, buy a couple of these adaptive things that I've found to be incredibly useful for people with limited dexterity and, and, and donate them to music therapy programs, donate them to recreational therapy uh, settings in hospitals, whatever, whatever it may be. Cause I know people will find joy in it. And, and it's incredibly therapeutic the same way I described about killing the white canvas and just working with the brushstroke. It doesn't matter if you got, 10 chords or two chords underneath your belt. If you transition between the two and you're strumming a guitar, it's, it, you know, it takes you to a, a place of zen. And whenever you discover that for yourself, my immediate, like who I am as a person, my immediate thing is to be like, I want to share it with the greater population. Check this out. Look what I discovered. And, uh, and that's kind of where my, my mind is. And I think that's what um, I think that's what I'll be doing and come, you know, turn the page in the future. And I'd love to bring the impossible dream over to St. Petersburg and do, you know, at least a month or so of programming over here. This is my home base now. And uh, there's a regatta. Like the reason I discovered St. Petersburg six, seven years ago is we came over here for a race and we left in a regatta from here from St. Pete Yacht Club. And we sailed to Mexico, ended up getting second place in the multi-hall class. This isn't a disability regatta. This is like proper regatta. We got second in the multi-all class. Um, I think there were overall, there was 40 or 50 boats entered um, in, the, in the entire regatta. So, you know, we don't mess around. We take it seriously. And I would love to do that regatta again and put some shine over here in St. Pete uh, with the impossible dream. Well, it's all great stuff that you're doing. I really appreciate your time and the opportunity that your life is presenting to other people who have experienced similar trauma in their life. And it does, again, reinforce to me why companies should be looking for credibly talented and creative people like yourself to incorporate them into the world of work. And I need to connect you with Rhoder Bernard, who's the head of the Berkeley School of Music Art Institute for Special Needs. They do stuff with kids with autism and Down syndrome. Uh, and uh, maybe when you guys sail up here, maybe we can get some of her kids to come down or you all can play together or something. I don't know. It'd be great. That, that'd be awesome. I mean, I keep trying to progress as much as possible. Uh, singing and playing is, is quite the challenge. I used to take singing lessons from an opera singer. So I, I, I understand just the process. I had so much fear or trepidation because I knew nothing. And she was a wonderful teacher. And she said, don't worry about it. You have to sound lousy. Just keep going. You know, you'll get better. You know, so keep doing it. You know, that's really the secret is just keep doing it. Yeah, well, I'm stoked. So it's definitely not slowing down. Great. Okay, well, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it, Larry. Thanks again for having me and putting a spotlight on the projects that I work with. They're obviously meaningful and dear to my heart. And I really respect you guys for amplifying not just my projects, but all the other amazing individuals you decide to have on the show. Best of luck, David.